what we're going through at the moment is the crucifixion of Christianity. And the Christians are saying, help, help, this is not nice, you know, we're on the cross. We want to fast forward to the resurrection. You can't fast forward to the resurrection. You have to experience the agony of the cross. We cannot have a world full of individuated individuals without having also a developed and individuated community. And that's where Christianity, I think, still has a lot to teach everybody, including Jungians. Welcome to Psychology and the Cross. In this episode, I engage in a dialogue with Professor David Tacey. David is a Jungian scholar and interdisciplinary researcher whose teaching and writing encompasses the areas of psychoanalysis, religion, spirituality studies, and literally approaches to psychology. He's a former professor of English at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, and has written numerous books on Jungian psychology, such as Religion as Metaphor, The Darkening Spirit, Jung, Spirituality and Religion, and How to Read Jung. In this episode, David speaks of his analysis with the late James Hillman, and about his former mentor's disdain towards Christianity and the Jungian self. He addresses the importance of reading the Bible symbolically rather than literally, the necessary death and rebirth of Christianity, and how Jungian individuation needs to be complemented with a Christian social ethos. Finally, we discuss Jung's role as a prophet for the 21st century in dreaming the Christian myth forward. David is serving us a full and very rich meal in this episode. It might be best enjoyed as a piece-by-piece meal in order to have time to fully digest. Feel free to share any feedback on cross.center. But let's start from the beginning. How did it all begin? Yes, well, uh, it wasn't through any academic uh, avenue. It was really through a personal crisis. I mean, a lot of people find Jung in a personal crisis, I find. I was desperately in love with a young woman, and I was about, uh, oh, I don't know, 22, age 22. She decided that um, the grass was greener on the other side and that she went off with another man, and I was very bereft and uh, depressed and upset. And uh, I was an undergraduate student at my university in South Australia, which was called the Flinders University. And um, she took me aside and she said, uh, what's wrong? And I told her. And she said, I think that woman might have something that, that you must take back. And I didn't quite know what she was talking about. Um, she was a trained theologian and a priest of the Anglican Church, which is called um, Church of England and also the Episcopal Church in America. And um, she had uh, studied Jung as a private matter and uh, was an expert in it but had never done any training because there was no training available in Australia in those days. I'm talking about the early 1970s. Um, there is still no training available in Australia. Uh, so she said, um, 
that woman has something you must get back. And, of course, she was talking about the soul, the anima, the soul. And um, I didn't understand all this. It seemed uh, very difficult to me. I never had any teachers apart from this old lady who um, was very kind. So it was just through existential despair. And then I started to realise what the anima and the animus were, and uh, I took it from there. Um, my university teachers were mostly opposed to Jung. Um, I used to ask them why, and he would, they would say, because he's been discredited years ago. And I asked, well, by who? <laughs> and they would say, by, the, by every discipline you can imagine, from psychiatry through sociology through psychology through you know, everything. In those days and still today, a lot of people denounce Jung without having read a word of him. So he clearly has a terribly bad reputation. Most students are not encouraged uh, to study Jung, and so students like me, we had to simply fight for the right to, to read and study Jung, and usually I would hand up essays to my teachers that they didn't understand. It, it, it's a grassroots thing, and um, there are no experts on Jung in my country, so you can't really go to anybody here. And um, you've got to ask, why is there such a terrible reputation for such an incredible genius? Luckily, the teachers didn't influence me. And I thought, now, this guy is amazing. Jung is worth reading, and I'm going to go ahead. So I, I, I used him in my undergraduate degree, which was on literature, philosophy, and psychology. They were the disciplines I was studying. And also fine arts, I was specialising in the history of modern painting. And um, eventually I went on, did a master's degree, uh, linking Jung with the study of literature. And then I did a PhD at the University of Adelaide, which was a Jungian study of the Australian novelist Patrick White, who himself was influenced by Jung. So Jung had, had always uh, had a quite a strong influence on Australian artists, writers, poets, musicians and uh, novelists, but not on the intellectual uh, scholars. Uh, so there was a big rift between the artists and the intellectuals and the artists were very strongly um, positive toward Jung. So that rift in Australian society continues to exist. And just shortly going back a little bit, did you then uh, also grow up with sort of spirituality or in a religious home or not? Or Oh, yes, I did. Yes, yes. Uh, strongly Christian background, a very strong Christian background, which I took seriously, although my two sisters didn't. Um, they rejected the, my family's Christianity, but I took it very seriously and sought for a personal relationship with God through Jesus. That was very important to me. And um, just as important was my contact with Indigenous people 
because I grew up in a little town in central Australia called Alice Springs, which was probably more than half black from the Aboriginal Indigenous people of Australia. It was their homeland. And um, white people like myself with uh, European backgrounds were almost in the minority. And um, Aboriginal people have a very strong spiritual life. It's not Christian or it has some some common ground with Christianity, but they have um, a spirituality which is close to that of the American Indians, for instance, or the shamans in Siberia, in Russia, and those very ancient cultures. Um, they have... Um, uh, very strong rites of passage, you know, to go from uh, being a youth to an adult. They have very strong connection with the earth. So I got a lot of my feelings for the spirituality of nature and the spirituality of earth came from the Indigenous people of Central Australia, the Aranda, the Pintabi, and the Walpuri people were the three tribes that I interacted with. And then when I studied Jung, of course, this was a wonderful experience for me because Jung explained a great deal about the beliefs of the Indigenous people. Indeed, Jung wrote about the Indigenous people of, um, of Australia in several of his essays. I found Jung not only personally interesting but culturally extremely engaging as a way of understanding Indigenous cultures and their symbolic lives. When I was about uh, 13, some of the Aboriginal boys in my classroom would suddenly be absent for, say, three or four weeks, and I'd ask where they were, and um, the answer was generally they're being taken by elders to engage in what's called men's business. And men's business is a rite of passage from youth into manhood and involving often a lot of painful activities, deprivations and lacerations over the chest, sometimes knocking out of the uh, eye tooth and also being um, taught the mysteries of the tribe and the mysteries of, uh, of, of the ancestors. Their ancestors are what Jung calls archetypes. This is basically the same thing. So they're communing with ancestors um, during this initiation ceremony where they're often asked to not eat, not drink, uh, sometimes they're given hallucinatory drugs in order to facilitate some kind of disruption of the normal psychological process. And all that is so terribly understandable in Jungian terms. You know, the ego has to be disrupted in order for the unconscious to be felt, the unconscious uh, which contains archetypes. But in their case, the unconscious is called the dreaming, which is an interesting word because naturally enough, Jungian psychology is based on dreaming and dreams. You said you, you started studying at the university, you brought your PhD. And literature. Yeah. What happened? And after the PhD, I won a um, postdoctoral fellowship uh, to America from the New York Harkness Foundation. 
and they said to me, uh, what would you like to do uh, on this uh, two-and-a-half, three-year fellowship? I was paid quite well, uh, a living allowance, and uh, they wanted some. They wanted me to work with someone in the university system in, um, in the United States. The only one I could think of was James Hillman, uh, who at that stage was... Um, a professor at the University of Dallas in Texas. Anyway, so I, I wrote to New York. Uh, they weren't very impressed by Hillman. They'd never heard of Hillman, and they didn't like Texas either because New York people are very elitist, and uh, one man said to me, no good can come out of Texas, which reminded me of the Bible, you know, where somebody says no good can come out of Nazareth. <laughs> so anyway, I... I fought against the prejudices of the New York, my New York sponsors, and uh, and uh, I, I made them agree to, that I was going to go to Dallas. So I was supposed to go there um, in in order to be uh, in intellectual discussions with James Hillman, and he had agreed initially, but and then when I went over there and lived in uh, in Dallas for three years. Hillman um, wasn't interested in intellectual discussions with me, so this was a bit of a crisis. He suggested two things, that I move elsewhere um, to, like, New England and find someone up there to talk to, or I go into analysis with him as his patient, uh, which he thought would be a better chance for me to further research the unconscious, being a patient in, in Jungian or as he called his own, uh, his own work, post-Jungian psychology. And, of course, I could hardly tell my sponsors in New York that I'd won this very prestigious prize and now was suddenly a patient in somebody's clinic. And um, so Hillman said, well, look, um, let's lie to them. And uh, so I did. Uh, he said, just tell them that you're having private tutorials with me and that they... Um, uh, mysteriously enough, cost the same amount as a clinical analysis. Uh, he saw me twice a week. But I felt that at the time I was a bit annoyed. Um, I felt that Hillman had tricked me uh, and almost um, manipulated me into becoming a patient. That wasn't the idea. But I just, at that stage, and I was still in my 20s, and now I'm almost 70, so you know, 50 years later, um, I clearly didn't know enough to engage Hillman in high-level dialogues, and I think he found my lack of understanding to be a constraint. So that's why he gave me that sort of ultimatum. But anyway, I decided to stay and become his patient. I was very unwilling at first. I'd already been in Jungian analysis in Australia for a number of years. Um, he was a great analyst, actually, an excellent, astute um, marvellous uh, dream worker and uh, at the time we worked on whatever came up in the dreams but um, particularly I was having difficulty with my father and clearly I had a father complex and Hillman helped me work through that so I certainly owe him a great debt because he, he was a very good, strong and, and insightful analyst but he was very ruthless as well because because of my christian background um 
being so strong since I was, you know, a baby, Christian symbols naturally came up in my analysis. Um, uh, the cross, uh, you know, the way of the cross, um, various miracles and signs from Christianity. And Hillman was very um, mm, dismissive of them. You know, he, he, he didn't like Christianity. And, of course, as you know, he was, he was trying to build an alternative psychology based almost purely on the Greek myths and the Greek goddesses. And he wanted to see Hermes and Dionysus and Apollo in my dreams. But if I was dreaming about Jesus, which I was, he wasn't impressed. And in that way, he wasn't such a good analyst because um, the pa- surely the patient's dreams are always right. You, you, you know, he, he was um, like trying to sort of say, well, why don't you have dreams about Greek gods and Greek goddesses? Because, because I'm a bloody Christian, that's why. And as you know, recently, in recent years, I've actually written some critical articles on Hillman which I published in the Journal of Analytical Psychology in London. Um, And, of course, uh, when I published them, there was outrage in North America because I think I was one of the first people to dare actually criticise Hillman. In America, he was clearly a a very dominant figure. I did admire him, of course, and, and I loved working with him, but I was always had questions in my mind about him. One of the questions I had was how post-Jungian is his psychology? I couldn't see it was post-Jungian at all. The thing missing from Hillman, of course, was the self. Hillman despised the Jungian self um, because he saw it as an image of Christ. And, indeed, uh, Jung wrote many essays uh, referring to Jesus as a symbol of the self. So in Hillman's mind, Jesus was out and the self was out as well. And I think that was um, a thing I didn't like about Hillman's work, which I've since published on in the Journal of Analytical Psychology in London, which is that um, Hillman's psychology is basically Jung's psychology without the self. So instead of the self and, and also Jung's psychology without individuation, Hillman didn't like individuation and he actually distrusted development, which is a very odd thing for a practising psychologist not to to be concerned with development. But um, they were the ways in which uh, Hillman had rejected his own Jungian training. And I think, um, you know, just as Zurich had thrown him out, um, Hillman had a bit of a sense of um, anger and resentment about the whole Zurich scene. And therefore, when he moved to America, it was very much uh, on his mind to reject the, the Zurich version of Jung, which was based around the self and individuation. And the connection between the self and, and the way of the cross, of course, is very close, as you know. Um, I mean, it's, it's easy to see individuation as a path, uh, the way of the cross, Um, and uh, that made Hillman dislike it all the more. I think 
that could be a, a good transition into the the actual sort of you know, core theme of this podcast, uh, which is exploring or investigating Christ and, and Christianity and its relationship to Jungian psychology, but also the yeah the questions that Jung wrestled with in his own life. And uh, when we wrote uh, some emails back and forth before this conversation. Uh, and we spoke about Hillman, you said uh, Hillman never said uh, an interesting word about Christianity, insightful right. word about Christianity. He actually despised Christianity, something you also now repeated in this conversation. And and, and then I shared with you uh, some of the readings I did in in the book Lament of the Dead, where he have has conversation with Sean Shandasani. And yes. a lot of that conversation sort of circles back to Christ, Yes. Christ figure. And I just want to share also for the listeners, you know, some quotes where, where Hillman actually speaks about Christ or Christianity. For example, Shandasani says about the Red Book, Jung's Red Book, if there were an index, it would show that the critical figure is Christ. Hillman says, where does Christ and Christianity fit into a new psychology? And, and Hillman is also saying... Um, there's a tension in Jung. He doesn't throw it out. He finds a way to remain with Christ. What do you think about, you know, this Hillman talking about Christ in this way? I don't think Hillman would talk about it if Shamdasani hadn't brought it up. You know, but Shamdasani is a pretty shrewd scholar and very insightful. And, um, and uh, I think Shamdasani is absolutely right. So people talk about the Red Book and they talk about this plethora of uh, figures, you know, like uh, Philemon and all these other figures that Jung encountered through active imagination. Um, but Chamdasani's right. Um, it's the whole uh, Red Book uh, is resonating with uh, Christian images and images of Christ. And um, Hillman was very enthusiastic, of course, about the Red Book. I think why Hillman was interested wasn't because of Christ. He was interested because of this was the imagination had burst forth in all this colour and all these astonishing paintings and all this artwork. I think I, think I found contradictory about this Red Book is that Jung denounced the Red Book strongly by the time he wrote Memories, Dreams, Reflections. He said he'd been um, uh, seduced by the anima when he was writing the Red Book uh, into thinking that he might be an artist and all those artworks, which are, in fact, some of them are very fine works of art. And then he decided at one point to put the Red Book behind him um, because he needed to focus on the conceptual, ideas-based uh, substance of depth psychology and not just the pretty pictures that he was producing in these states of distress as he was encountering figures from the unconscious. So um, but I think we're very fortunate to have Sonu Shamdasani, um, and I agree with Sean McGrath that he has single-handedly made uh, Jungian studies academically respectable, and I think that's absolutely right. We have an enormous debt to Shamdasani. It's interesting that Shamdasani is not an analyst. He's a scholar. Um, analysts can't quite write 
with the depth of history and understanding that uh, Shamdasani has in his training. And he, everything he has done has been uh, extremely valuable. So I think, as you say, there are echoes of, of Christ all through uh, the Red Book and um, Jung clearly valued the Christ figure. But Hillman's right to the extent that we can't necessarily equate the Christ of the Red Book with the Christ of Christianity. <laughs> you know, they're, they're very, it's like we can't equate Jung's God with the God of Christianity either. I mean, Jung's God was uh, seemingly anti-Christian in some ways. One of uh, Jung's first experiences of his contact with his God was that his God let fly a giant turd onto the Basel Cathedral, um, which, of course, Freudians read as a, an Oedipal, uh, they, they refer to it as anal aggressivity, anal aggressivity against the church of his father, which was the um, uh, personified and, and uh, architecturally by the Basel Cathedral. Jung's vision of the Basel Cathedral. One fine summer day that same year I came out of school at noon and went to the cathedral square. The sky was gloriously blue, the day one of radiant sunshine. The roof of the cathedral glittered, the sun sparkling from the new lightly glazed tiles. I was overwhelmed by the beauty of the sight and thought, the world is beautiful and the church is beautiful. And God made all this and sits above it far away in the blue sky on a golden throne. And here came a great hold in my thoughts and a choking sensation. I felt numbed and knew only, don't go on thinking now. Something terrible is coming. Something I do not want to think. Something I dare not even approach. Why not? because I would be committing the most frightful of sins. What is the most terrible sin? Murder? No, it can't be that. The most terrible sin is the sin against the Holy Ghost, which cannot be forgiven. I gathered all my courage, as though I were about to leap forthwith into hellfire, and let the thought come. I saw before me the cathedral, the blue sky, God sits on his golden throne, high above the world, and from under the throne an enormous turd falls upon the sparkling new roof, shatters it, and breaks the walls of the cathedral asunder. So that was it. I felt an enormous and indescribable relief. Instead of the expected damnation, grace had come upon me, and with it an unutterable bliss such as I had never known. I wept for happiness and gratitude. The wisdom and goodness of God had been revealed to me now that I had yielded to his inexorable command. It was as though I had experienced an illumination. A great many things I had not previously understood became clear to me. I, I don't get too excited by 
Christians who claim that Jung's work helps Christianity to recover because it's clearly that Christianity as a tradition is in decline in Europe and in all European-influenced countries, such as my own Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Christianity uh, in its public form is basically at the point of collapse. Um, so Jung's Christ is a, is a Gnostic figure. Uh, I don't think Jung's Christ is, a, um, is, is an orthodox, uh, is in line with orthodox understandings of, of Jesus at all. Um, but Jung uh, respected the fact that his own soul had historical antecedents and historical background. There was no way that Jung was going to completely reject Christianity. Although, of course, Christians rejected Jung, many, many of them, especially Father Victor White, but also other Christians that tried to work with Jung found it almost impossible to reconcile Jung's work with, um, with Christianity. Jung burnt his bridges uh, with Christianity by insisting on gnosis above faith. And I think this was the basis of the rift with Christians, that Christians emphasise faith. Jung emphasises gnosis or knowledge. And that's why, you know, in that famous interview, he says, I don't believe in God, I know which is a funny thing to say in some ways because um, it's a very Gnostic thing to say. So very much upset, I think, Christians worldwide when Jung uh, seemed to condemn the idea of belief and the related concept of faith. But you're also saying, you also told me that, uh, yeah, Jung can be understood as a Gnostic, but, but you said not in a negative sense. And you speak also how he sort of counterbalances this knowledge with his agnostic uh, scientific persona. Could you say something? Well, that's right. Yeah? I, 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 yes, he does. I mean, Jung's persona, which is what we see throughout collected works, except in, in, in answer to Job, I mean, he's so-called scientific persona basically dissolves and, and he's writing answer to Job as a, um, as a very passionate person and a, and, a, and a Gnostic who believes that there is a God and there is divine significance in the figure of, of Jesus Christ. But um, I think these two sides of Bjorn were often in conflict. I think... Um, Jung wasn't really uh, unified in his own personality about Christianity. He certainly couldn't get rid of it. Um, and it had a claim on him, which I think he found almost grew stronger as he got older. So as you know, Jung thought that the things that um, Christians consider to be literally true, like the virgin birth and the physical resurrection, the walking on water, the feeding of thousands with, uh, you know, two fish and three loaves, all these for Jung were complete nonsense as historical events. They had to be read symbolically and taken symbolically as statements of myth. But as soon as you say that to some Christians, 
they think you're being very heretical and um, and even blaspheming because we're talking about changing the way the holy book is read. But Jung thought that the writers of the Gospels were all writing in symbolic ways, in symbolic terms, and that so he Jung reversed the tables. It wasn't that he was reading Jung, uh, sorry, wasn't that he was reading the Bible incorrectly, but in his view, Christians had en masse, in large numbers, read the Bible incorrectly for centuries. And, of course, he goes right back, and one of Jung's favourite figures is Origen, uh, who, was a, who was a strong Christian convert in Alexandria in, in Egypt, and he, uh, if you read Origen's work, he was, of course, reading the Bible uh, non-literally, reading the, um, reading the, um, the texts uh, that were available in his day, including the Gospel of Thomas, um, reading them non-literally. And Origen said that's the only way we should read them. Otherwise, they become documents about impossible events. So I published a book on that, um, which was called uh, Religion as Metaphor. I published that in America some years ago, and that's my, that was my contribution to this debate. And again, Christians misunderstand my motivation. It wasn't to destroy Christianity at all, because I remain a Christian, but to try and deepen our understanding of Christianity. <laughs> You wrote to me before this conversation that uh, you said that I don't think you was ultimately a Christian. He was born Christian, no. educated in the Christian mold, and much of his late work was focused on the analysis of Christian ideas, beliefs, and dogmas. But you say mm. that it seems to you that he outgrew Christianity, and you say as soon as he entered young adulthood. And in a way, yeah. I, I hear you, but I, I'm also hearing you speaking about how Jung wrestled and tried and wanted to yeah. create a reformation or a, a, a revisioning or a, a new understanding of, of the gospel or of, of Christianity. When I said that Jung is not Christian, I got my tongue in my cheek because, of course, he was obsessed with Christianity all of his life. And I just, when I say Jung was not a Christian, what I would, I would, qualify that statement by saying that Jung was not a Christian as the person down the street in a Christian country would recognise Christianity. The sorts of things that they hold to be true for their faith, uh, for instance, um, you know, where Paul says in the letters to the Corinthians that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all our faith is in vain. Um, well, Jung just disregards that. And, in fact, uh, he wrote an entire essay um, on the resurrection. It's in um, volume 18, which is called The Symbolic Life. And people who try to, to reconcile Jung with mainstream Christianity should read that essay um, on the resurrection um, before they utter statements like, Jung is definitely trying to renew or revivify the Christian religion. Jung, I think, like very similar to his, to his predecessor, Origen, wanted to basically smash Christianity in its present forms 
because of its literalism and its supernaturalism, which did not appeal to Jung at all. Um, and um, if you read Answer to Job, particularly the preface, his preface to Answer to Job, he does say there that the Christianity that we are historically aware of as Christianity will have to disappear in order to give rise to a new understanding of Christianity where all the miracles and wonders and supernatural events, including the physical resurrection, which many Christians say is the foundation of their faith, well, Jung says that all of that has to be overturned and we have to rediscover Christianity as a symbolic mythos. The public um, participation in Christianity in my country is as low as about 5 or 6% of the population. Well, Jung is definitely right. I mean, it seems to be happening already that, that this religion is in a process of, if not dying, mourning or grieving something that was... But I'm also wondering in what way this critique or this uh, uh, disruption, you know, of, of you mm. is helpful for dreaming the myth forward, because still it's the Christian myth. It's still the, the dream is still the Christian dream, no? Mm. Uh, that 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 you know. And I think yes. sometimes there's a, a unionism or there's a yeah, there's mm. also a lot of negativity in the union, in the union field about Christ and Christianity. Absolutely, yes. to to relate to. It's difficult to, as I spoke to another scholar, which would be the episode before this one, and Conrad Lammers. She says that maybe a bridge is not a good metaphor for what one could do between you know Christianity or Christ and, and unionism. It's too it's too sort of a grand of, of, of a building to try to build a bridge in in, in this way. It, it failed or it broke down, and here we are oh. here sitting in a Christian world that is disintegrating. Yeah, um, the, the bridge collapsed. Yeah, he tried yeah. to build a bridge, but it just uh, it. See, he was only building it from his side. If, if you ask any engineer or architect, they will tell you that bridges need to be built from both sides of the gap. A bridge, a bridge can't be built from one side. It would just collapse. It has to be built from the other side. And that's why when the Christians that Jung was working with um, uh, deserted him and uh, really that's when the bridge collapsed, there was no bridge, um, although he wanted to build one. And he also, Christians often complain that Jung um, was replacing religion with psychology. Uh, and I think I've heard many Jungians say that. I, I don't believe that for a minute. I think Jung was saying we need an approach to religion. We don't need to replace it. We need to understand it anew from a psychological point of view. That's a statement he makes time and again in psychology and alchemy. We're not, he keeps saying, I'm not, you know, he was accused of psychologism. That was the word people, religious people used in anger at Jung, as if he was reducing everything to psychology. It simply wasn't the case. If you read him carefully, he was saying, um, what did he call religion? Something like a... Uh, uh, mysterious or sanctified psycho babble or something until we unravel all this symbolism and understand its deeper meaning and then it becomes valid again and then and that's the so perhaps Jung was a post-doctrinal Christian 
um, he certainly did not agree with um, the doctrines of Christianity. He could never read out the Apostles' Creed with any sense of moral conscience. Um, and, and the you know, he'd say, look, this was written in the third century or fourth century. I think the introduction to Answer to Job, which is only about five pages, is the most cogent statement Jung ever wrote about Christianity and why it had to die in its current form. You see, this is the important thing. Jung felt it had to die in its current form in order to be reborn in a new way. So, in a sense, you can see how the Christian myth is operating even in that statement. You have to die to be born again. In other words, this what we're going through at the moment is the crucifixion of Christianity. And the Christians are saying, help, help, this is not nice. You know, we're on the cross. We want to fast forward to the resurrection. You can't fast forward to the resurrection. You have to experience the agony of the cross. Um, and as I said, I get misread as trying to destroy Christianity. But anyone who tries to change anything is, uh, is claimed to be a destroyer. I love, you know, your metaphor or image of uh, Christians on the cross at this moment of, uh, of history. Mm. It's, it's a very beautiful and powerful image that you're sharing. But, mm. but I'm, and I also believe strongly in what you say about the importance of, of, of symbolical understanding or reading these stories uh, myth mythologically or symbolically. But mm. Christianity is not only about, you know, personal uh, salvation or maybe some would say it is but it's also about the world it's also yeah. about community it's also about yeah. the collective and it's also about uh, jesus christ for some at least which speaks about not uh, only my individuation but you know the world's so i'm i'm, I'm wondering and, and and that yeah and, and we do see the churches emptying out or being destroyed or being left so I'm wondering also on that aspect, because it's an aspect that unions are not always so strong on, the collective aspect of this, or no. you know, the universal. That's right. And that's why the Vatican keeps condemning Jung. You know, the Vatican has produced, I think, now three documents condemning Jung. And one of the, re one of the reasons they keep condemning him is because they say he's advocating narcissism, individualism, and uh, ignoring the collective. And I tell you what, they've got a good point because um, to some extent Jungian analysis is about me, my encounter with my unconscious. And, and that's bizarre because Jung's terms aren't about me and my, they're about the collective unconscious. So why do people suddenly forget that the unconscious is not just my personal possession but it's part of the collectivity? And... Um, I think that this is the great contribution that Christianity has made and continues to make, although it's in a very uh, weakened form these days, is this emphasis on community and this emphasis on shared experience of the divine rather than my individuation and my personal symbols of the divine, which I've garnered from my dreams. 
But even that is contradictory because Jung pointed out that the, the most important dreams we have are collective dreams. And, he, of course, when he was in Africa, uh, the Algonyi in, uh, where was it now, in Kenya and Ethiopia, kept telling him that there's a big difference between little dreams and big dreams. And um, big dreams are the dreams that affect the whole country, the whole race, the whole nation. And I think some of us continue to have big dreams, but if we just sit on them and think that their own pers personal um, uh, things that have arisen uh, for our personal development or ag aggrandizement, I do think that Jung started to feel guilty about this individualism toward the end of his career because don't forget he constantly tried to correct people he said my my work is about individuation not individualism and he would keep continue to say that individualism is a misreading of individuation and um, particularly in that late essay of his called the undiscovered self that's very much concerned about society about people in Europe and elsewhere, uh, they can't live, he thought, without an idea of God because we have to have something at the centre of our lives which uh, can uh, provide a focus not only for our belief but also for our, our, our development as individuals. And um, so um, I think Jung developed a strong conscience about the way that his work would probably be misused as a purely personal uh, way of um, attending to your own personal growth, which certainly wasn't his um, his uh, intention. But if you read a lot of Jungians, you would think that was his intention. A lot of the popular books about Jung um, are exactly written in that kind of mode, as if society doesn't exist and the community isn't needed. Well, of course, we cannot have a world full of individuated individuals without having also a developed and individuated community. And that's where Christianity, I think, still has a lot to teach everybody, including Jungians. Well, I wanted to maybe just spend the last um, minutes, which is not enough, but, but, but to talk about uh, the paper that I think you wrote most recently for your lecture series in Russia, which is called, uh, one of them at least, is called Jung as a Prophet for a New Dispensation. Yes. And, and in it you argue that Jung actually was a prophet and can only be understood in, in this light. Yes, and I that do. That Jung is yeah. suffering from carrying a prophetic burden. Absolutely. Um, yeah, in my view. Yeah. Could you speak a bit about Jung as a prophet? Well, yes, and, and I know my dear friend and colleague Sean McGrath disagrees strongly with me, and I'd, I'd challenge him to a debate, actually, on this. Um, I do think that Jung can only be understood as a prophet. Um, if you read the Red Book, I mean, the whole book is a book of prophecy. Maybe people like Sean and others are thinking that Jung is not a prophet in the mainstream Judeo-Christian tradition, and I'd certainly agree with that. But that, that's not the only form of prophecy. You can have all kinds of prophecy concerned with the future. And, of course, you know, that famous uh, discussion Jung had with Max Zeller from Berlin, 
when Zeller was leaving Zurich to found the Jung Institute of Los Angeles in California, um, just before he left, he had this dream that people were building this vast temple and, um, uh, and, and that the foundations were already there, but they were building pillars and walls and roofs. And Jung's response to this was very enthusiastic. He, he'd tap his pipe on his chair and he'd say, this is the new temple. And he'd say, they're building it in India, they're building it in America, they're building it in Russia, they're building it in China. And, um, and Max Zeller asked him, uh, how long will it take to build this church? And Jung said, I know. And Zeller said, well, how do you know? And Jung said, from people's dreams and from my own dreams. And uh, to build this um, new temple, this new religion, if you like, will take 600 years. That's a long time to wait. Uh, so I think what Jung said in his um, public statements, which is he often said, I'm not a prophet and I'm not here to found a new religious order, um, and I'm a psychologist and empiricist and a phenomenologist, was totally contradicted by what he said privately to Max Zeller. Um, and that can be found in Max Zeller's book called The Visions, Dreams of the Night. Um, and um, I think uh, Jung played a duplicitous game with many of us. He would go to London and give talks to the Guild of um, Pastoral Psychology and say that he wasn't a religious leader. He was simply a humble clinician. It's total nonsense. I mean, who's he feel, fooling? Um, he was a prophet, and I think he'll be regarded as such in the future, as a major prophet, not necessarily of some new religion that has nothing to do with his own Christian roots. Quite the contrary. I do think that Jung wanted to dream the Christian dream onward, and I do think he wanted it to, um, to learn a lot of things from Buddhism in particular. They're the two religions that Jung valued most of all, was Christianity and Buddhism. He was less keen on Judaism and he wasn't too keen on Islam either, um, and nor was he very keen on Hinduism, although he did borrow from Hinduism. The very idea of the self comes from Hinduism and its concept of the Atman. But I think Jung thought that the future might be some amalgam of uh, Christianity and Buddhism, and I think he, he, he would hope that uh, the new religion or the new faith will maintain Christianity's commitment to community and to social justice, but be incorporated or, or complemented by the Buddhist emphasis on introspection, contemplation, meditation and interiority. And as you know, Jung was quite um, critical of countless um, uh, Europeans, including uh, many people from his own native Switzerland, who were abandoning Christianity and turning toward Buddhism. Um, and he'd say, well, you, you're abandoning the houses that your fathers built, you know, the churches, and you're invading the temples of uh, India and um, Sri Lanka and Japan, the Zen Buddhist temples that your fathers didn't build. 
So Jung is often criticised for those statements, but what he was saying, in effect, was that the soul has history. We can't forget and ignore the history of the soul. And you cannot take 2,000 years of Christian history and just put it in the garbage can. It's not going to work. Christianity has been part of our spiritual and uh, our soulful makeup for a long, long time and a long, long time to come. But that's the good news. The bad news is that it won't survive in its current forms and its current forms might have to collapse in order to give rise to this um, uh, sort of fusion of Buddhism and, um, and Christianity. So Jung, I think, had a very grand vision. He was a prophet and too many Jungians try to ignore this, uh, a dimension of his life and his work when we should not ignore it at all. I mean, Jung is a tragic figure. I mean, Sham Dasani says this in his book um, on the, uh, the birth of a new psychology, that Jung falls between two stools. Uh, he's too religious for the scientists and he's too scientific for the religious. So Jung, uh, the fate of Jung is somewhat tragic. Uh, he wanted a to form a place midway between science and religion, and um, no one was was going to do that, at least not 100 years ago. They're more likely to do it now in the age of, um, you know, quantum physics and new biology and new ecology. This is one of the paradoxes of the whole field. Jung speaks more to the 21st century than he does to the 20th. And I know I wrote in one of my books somewhere that the 20th century may, may have been Freud's, but the 21st century, I think, will be Jung's. He will emerge as the dominant figure, not Freud, who will disappear into the background as an actual very minor figure. I mean, if you look at contemporary biology, you know, like Rupert Sheldrake, contemporary physics like Paul Davies and um, uh, these sorts of people, they're all talking about the numinous dimension of matter. You know, Thomas Berry, uh, one of the most famous ecologists, whose work, of course, is based on um, uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, de Chardin the, the French Jesuit who was rejected by his own Catholic Church. All these new building blocks of the new sciences, whether you look at physics, biology, chemistry, um, ecology, all the sciences are moving in a Jungian direction. And maybe we could talk about that in another time. Mm -hmm.